You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. When you come into the land that Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that Yahweh your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place that Yahweh your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in the office at that time and say to him, I declare today... To Yahweh your God, that I have come into the land that Yahweh swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of Yahweh your God. And you shall make response before Yahweh your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to Yahweh, the God of our fathers, and Yahweh heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil and our oppression. And Yahweh brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Yahweh, have given me. And you shall set it down before Yahweh your God and worship before Yahweh your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that Yahweh your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, give it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. Then you shall say before Yahweh your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover, I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandment that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten of the tithe while I was mourning, or removed any of it while I was unclean, or offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the voice of Yahweh my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation, from heaven, and bless your people Israel, and the ground that you have given us, as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. This day Yahweh your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared today that Yahweh is your God, and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. And Yahweh has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession, as he has promised you, and that you are to keep all his commandments, and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor, high above all nations that he has made, and that you shall be a people holy to Yahweh your God, as he promised. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet, 
Coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, I have now episode 673 for your listening enjoyment, for your consideration submitted. Also, today is Saturday, July 29th, 2023. That was a reading of Deuteronomy 26, and I like this passage. I do. I think we need to talk about rules and statutes. (laughs) Let's talk about rules and statutes and what it would be like if we could enjoy and take joy in following rules and statutes. How many of us ever enjoy when somebody gives us a set of rules? I mean, there are people, and don't get me wrong, some people love rules. They love rules. But especially since 2020 and the business surrounding a Wu flu, the Kung flu, COVID-19, whatever you want to call it, whatever you like to use as a descriptor, I think that we do not approach rules with joy. I, I think we don't. I think we don't like so much the rules thing. And that's true on both ends of the equation. That's true for those who are being told you have to follow these rules now. And there are so many rules. There's rules for everything. And the rules are arbitrary and they change from one day to the next. And they're retroactive as well. Not just arbitrary, but that's arguably the worst combination. Arbitrary rules combined with retroactive accounting If you violated this rule before, even though it wasn't the rule, even though the rules were arguably just the opposite, or the rule was that there were no rules, now, if we find that you violated these new standards, then, hoo-hoo, boy, it's going to go badly for you. You know, the people who are having that imposed on them, and they object strenuously, like myself, for instance, and I think it's good for us to object strenuously to arbitrary rulemaking and also retroactive punishment for violating arbitrary rules. I think that's oppressive. I, I do. I think that's definitionally unjust and capricious and malicious and not at all delicious. But then also the people who are imposing those rules, they don't seem like they're typically all that happy about it. I mean, you do get, like I said, those who just enjoy rules. They have rules for everything in their life. They're very disciplined, very ordered. They like checklists. They like to-do lists. They like going down the line and just as they complete their tasks. But especially as they're trying to jump on bandwagons and maybe they're not so sold on the rules, but they don't want to be on the wrong side of the rules. And so they're trying to demand everybody follow the rules because they went to public school, for instance, and they learned nothing so well as being obedient to arbitrary authority in the public schools. Obey the state, obey your government. That is citizenship in the progressive mold. As they're trying to keep up with the bandwagon and not fall off of it, they're jumping on it and they don't want to fall off of it. And they want everybody else who's not on it to get that wag of the finger they don't seem particularly joyful about it. They, they don't. And there's so much tension and strife that you can't hardly even talk about problems because where do you start, right? There are the problems. And then when we get to trying to talk about the problems, we have additional problems because it turns out we have been practicing 
to talk about the problems in a very problematic way, in a very rude way, in a very caustic way, in a very insulting and derogatory way, in a very arbitrary way. We've been practicing to be offended and to give offense needlessly. And so then when we try to talk about problems, we've got more problems still. But how would it be, friends, Romans, countrymen, how would it be if someone could give us rules that we would say are fair and just and good and they bring a benefit? I think that's, I think that's part of why so many of us are so unhappy about rulemaking. And that's what politics seems to be, is this complicated labyrinthine process of either making rules and then imposing them on other people joylessly, unhappily, harshly, or else sadistically, or else the wolf and the sheep sitting down at the negotiating table, figuring out how many of the flock are going to be fleeced or else converted into lamb chops. When that's what politics seems to be, and it seems as though that rulemaking is impossible to keep up with because maybe that's the idea. It's supposed to be confusing. It's supposed to be unpleasant. Maybe what we need is someone to give us better rules that are not oppressive and they're not unfair and they're not unjust and they're not constantly changing because the character of the one who's giving us the rules doesn't change, cannot change. His purposes cannot change. Maybe what we need is rules that we could enjoy and get a blessing from. And maybe the reason why we're not enjoying so much the rulemaking thing, either having rules imposed on us or being dragged into imposing rules on other people, maybe the reason why we don't enjoy that so much is because there's no benefit to us. We look at the rules and we say, this doesn't make sense. And what we mean by this doesn't make sense is there is zero benefit to me or anyone else that I know. And as a matter of fact, there's a tremendous cost to a lot of these rules. Think, for instance, about rules prohibiting natural gas-fired ovens and stoves. Those rules are stupid. Those are stupid rules. Those are dumb rules. How about rules pertaining to fireplaces? If you would have a fireplace in your house, there are rules, rules that make it far more expensive and complicated and unhappy than it needs to be. If, as the Biden administration is considering, they ban or else mandate certain kinds of hot water heaters, are we going to find the same joyless and unhappy effect? That is, there's no benefit, not to us, not to our children, not to our neighbors, not to our brothers and sisters, not to our parents, not to our friends, not to the other members of our community. Are we going to find that there's only cost, no benefit? Well, then no one should be surprised. Absolutely nobody should be surprised when there is a certain degree of frustration and exasperation and there's an absolute lack of joy. And the people who are joyful, you really do have to wonder, okay, what's going on? with those folks who are happy about it. Who is happy about the idea of some bureaucrat, some political appointee saying, oh, you want hot water for showers? 
You want hot water for cleaning? It's going to cost you. I mean, it was already going to cost you, but it's going to cost you even more now. Who that was delivering that hot water to their application and deriving a benefit thereby, who that was already getting a benefit is going to be joyful about it. At best, the folks who get their information from corporate media, who parrot uncritically whatever the left tells them next, whatever the Democrats tell them next to do or not do, who can do more than shrug? And that shrugging, right? That shrugging is joyless. I think we have to recognize that. When the best you can do is shrug about it, it is highly debatable, but then therein lies another problem. The next problem is when these kinds of mandates, these kinds of rules that are multiplying, every time you turn around, there's a new one being considered or imposed, and now you have to decide, am I going to try and fight it? Am I going to comply? Is there a way for me to not comply? What are the consequences if I don't comply? It's just more costs, right? There would be an added cost if I do comply, and there's going to be a punitive, retributive, not restorative, increased cost if I don't comply. And that's how they get you. They can't sell it to you by saying, here's this increased benefit. They can't persuade you. They don't regard you as somebody who needs to be won over. So they threaten with penalties, with fines, with perhaps even jail time. And so then when it's highly debatable whether this is a good thing, but you can't debate because just like they're not going to try and persuade you, they're not open to being persuaded, and these are two sides of the same coin, then what? How are you supposed to do more than shrug? Well, at a certain point, you have to resign yourself to the fate, entrust your soul to God, (laughs) or you have to fight. And the fighting, I don't necessarily mean in a literal physical sense, as in you pick up weapons, you pick up arms, and you go and threaten yourself, right? You say, hey, there's a cost, right? You keep trying to incur costs on my account, and I'm over it. I'm done with it. Stop it, or else I'm going to hurt you physically. I will harm you or kill you. Stop it. I'm not necessarily talking about that, but I think actually the other side of the political spectrum, this left side of the political spectrum, they are definitely willing to go there for non-compliance if they have to, as soon as they think the public is ready for that. And then if they can condition the public to rationalize it and to lie about it, then we are the Soviets. We are the Russians living under Bolshevik revolution. We are Russians living under communism. Or we're no better. In fact, we're arguably much worse off because we are coming from a place in the not too distant past of being much more free and knowing God in a much more comprehensive, widespread way, representing God, I would say, historically, more faithfully. And what is coming in is not more godliness. What's coming in is oppression. What is coming in is demonic, increasingly. And if you take the principle that the man who has a 
demon cast out or the woman who has a demon cast out may sometimes find that the demon goes out into the wilderness, into the dry places, wandering and then coming back to the original host, the person they were oppressing with seven other demons worse than they, more vile, more oppressive than I think you get something of an idea of how much worse it will be for America, for us as Americans, with many of these demons having been cast out, not just those demons coming back, but worse demons, more and worse demons coming in to oppress us and our families and our friends and our communities. But coming back to Deuteronomy 26, and let's talk about the happiness, let's talk about the joy of this. You have the when, right? So there's an expectation from the very first verse here, when you come into the land, not if, not on the off chance, when you come into the land, which is to say you will come into the land, Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance, you will take possession of it, when you have taken possession of it and live in it, here is the rule. Here is the protocol. Here's the procedure. You're going to bring your first fruits to Yahweh. And you're going to say and recite these words. And these words will be a reminder to you and others who listen about where you come from, because that's important. Where you're at will be very important, but where you come from to get to that place is also important. And this is a command. It's not an option if you feel like it. No, no, this is a command. It's a rule. It's a statute. But this is, as you would say in Hebrew, mitzvah. This is good deeds. To do this is a good deed. The recitation of where this man or that man has come from, how he has come to possess his inheritance, his portion in Israel, that recitation is itself a good work. But then there's more to it than just words. It's not just the recitation of words, it's the bringing in of first fruits. And then who do the first fruits go to? They go to the Levites, the sojourners, the fatherless, which is interesting, by the way. Have you ever stopped to consider that the fatherless are mentioned in particular? It's not just orphans in the abstract. It's fatherless children. Children who don't have a father are really the priority here. And actually, science is increasingly bearing out the statistics, our observation of trends in America as we can track how many children grow up without a father in the home, we understand that statistically the father in particular not being present, not being engaged, not applying himself, not teaching, not disciplining, not setting the example, not protecting, not providing is huge. And so here we see in Deuteronomy 26 and many other places in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the importance of the father in the life of his children, the fatherless will get these first fruits. First fruits. First fruits. The fatherless. In addition to the Levites, who are the priestly tribe, the sojourners, so this is visitors, this is to do with hospitality, the fatherless and the widow get the first fruits. They get 
the tithe of the produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, the fatherless and the widow, verse 12, get to eat and be filled in the towns. And in the book of James in the New Testament, we see that religion that God our Father finds pure and acceptable, religion that pleases God, is this, to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So that has to do with holiness and to attend widows and orphans in their need. That's the kind of religion we need more of as Christians. If that was what characterized us, if that was our reputation, hey, you know those Christians? Yeah, what about them? Yeah, they really take care of widows and orphans. Isn't that great? Yeah, it is pretty great. They've got some weird ideas. I don't know if I agree with them in some of their uh, you know, beliefs, but that's at least pretty great. Yeah, it is. It is pretty great, isn't it? Yeah. You know, and that's what it should be. That's what God is honored by when his people attend to widows and orphans, but not just orphans in the abstract, those who are fatherless in particular, which is to say too, if you're a dad, don't be that dad who blindly, mutely, dumbly submits to the bandwagon when it's your child who is being threatened. You have a responsibility to protect your son, your daughter. Don't meekly, quietly hand your child over to the bandwagon. Don't make your children fatherless because you abandoned them in their hour of need. Protect your children. Don't leave your children to languish. Provide for them. Give them food. Give them a place to sleep. Give them a roof over their heads. Give them an education. Give them instruction. Provide for your children. Protect your children. And if you see other children who are fatherless, take them under your wing and invite them to come along and make sure that they are attended to. Make sure that somebody is watching out for them, somebody is protecting them, and that somebody is you, at least. Make sure that somebody is coming through for them when they are in dire straits. That pleases God. But notice also, what's after the giving of this tithe and making sure that the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow eat and get their fill within your town. Try that in a small town, by the way. We see this prayer. We see this recitation continue. So there are words, and then there is action, and then there are more words. And we see in verse 16, This day Yahweh your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful, which is to say you will be intentional, you will be deliberate, you will do this in an excellent way. You shall be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. So you don't just go through the motions. You enjoy it and you put yourself into it. You put all that you have into doing it. You have declared today, verse 17, that Yahweh is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. And Yahweh has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession as he has promised you and that you are to keep all his commandments and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that he has made 
and that you shall be a people holy to Yahweh your God as he promised. Now, pause to reflect for a moment. I have a friend. I love him dearly. We disagree, but we can disagree agreeably. And it's actually a fantastically therapeutic thing to disagree agreeably. I do have real genuine disagreements with him. And I don't think he hates me for it. I think he loves me for it because he's a wise man. Even though we disagree, he's a wise man. But I have a friend who holds the view that all of the nations are abominable. And even it seems to me the idea of nationhood is somewhat abominable. And the gospel is that God calls us out of nations. And so you don't identify yourself with any nation except the nation of the Most High God. And I would disagree with that. I would. I think that's not correct. I think that is not what the text says. And I think that's not the right way to read it. But he would hear me if I were to talk with him right now. And I said, I don't think that's quite what it is. And here's why. And what about this? And this and this and this and this. And he would answer that without getting all upset. And I love him for that. But here, notice, friend, my friend, Alex, if you're listening, notice. (laughs) Verse 19, Deuteronomy 26. He will set you in praise and in fame and in honor, high above all nations that he has made. So who made these nations? Yahweh. Yahweh made these nations. Now, that is not to say they don't sin and they don't get punished for it. They fool around and they find out. The more you fool around, the more you're going to find out, as the meme goes. And I'm substituting a word here, but you catch my meaning. There's something of a bell curve for fooling around and finding out. And that's true with nations and God. Fool around and find out. But we shouldn't miss that God made those nations and that he has a purpose for the nations. And if he has put us into a nation, then Jeremiah 29 is very much worth meditating on and considering. Seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh your God has brought you in your exile, which is to say we should think of ourselves in whatever nation we live in as being in exile. Sure, absolutely, yes. Amen, amen, amen. If we are in Christ. Yes, we are exiles, strangers in a strange land. But that doesn't mean we are unconcerned, uninterested, apathetic. That does not mean that we shrug, and that does not mean that we disengage. Though it is very easy to want to, it is very tempting. We seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh our God has brought us in our exile, for in its welfare we will find our welfare. If that's a command from God, then it's a good thing to do, and no one should say, that is a distraction from the gospel. That is, in part, how we live out the gospel. I am convinced. I'm persuaded. Seek the welfare of the city. I am here in Greeley. I want to seek the welfare of Greeley. What's one of the totally valid and entirely biblical reasons to seek the welfare of Greeley, Colorado, USA? Because this is where I live. This is where <laughs> this is where I live. And you know what? Actually, To make this point, I'm going to play a very short clip of Guardians of the Galaxy. In the words of Star-Lord, here it is, cut one. Here's how you should think about it, more or less. Are you kidding me? We're 
want it by the Nova Corps. Just give it to Ronan so he can destroy the galaxy. What are you, some saint all of a sudden? What has the galaxy ever done for you? Why would you want to save it? Because I'm one of the idiots who lives in it. <laughs> yes, uh, you're right. Exactly. Uh, that's it, right? I live here, right? <clears throat> I live here. And more importantly, my wife and my sons and my daughter live here. So, yeah, it's kind of a big deal. It's kind of important how it goes, how it does. It kind of matters. Now, if the welfare of the city is just fit to be tied on self-immolation, I, I, I will at least be able to keep good company with my conscience. And I will at least be able to say before my God on the day of judgment, this is what I did this is what I understood you to be directing and leading and guiding me in your word and by your spirit to do. And this is what you had blessed me with to be able to do it. And there you go. Amen. So be it. Now, just briefly, I want to say a word or two about a message I received over Instagram this week that was very encouraging from a certain Eretz Barazani. I think I'm saying your name right, Eretz. But Eretz is a listener to this podcast. He found it because he was looking for somebody who had anything to say about the Asian saga by James Clavell. And lo and behold, I want to talk about everything. I read the Asian saga, very much enjoyed it. And I did a podcast episode all about the Asian saga by James Clavell. Eretz Barazani listened to that episode and then he started listening to other episodes and he messaged me on Wednesday. Hey, Garrett, I have come across your podcast by looking to hear about James Clavell's books. Wonderful, interesting podcast. And I love your opinions. Keep it up. I messaged back. I said, hey, Eretz, thanks for reaching out. It's a pleasure to hear from you. Thank you for the compliments. I'm glad you're enjoying the podcast. Where are you from? What's your story? Get this. He says, these days, it's hard finding someone or something to listen to that has integrity and values. I love the fact that you talk about everything. Very refreshing, very interesting. I know you are a Christian and I am Jewish myself, born and raised in Israel, but currently living in Sweden with my wife, working as a product designer. I have two little boys, Raphael is three years old now, and Aaron that came to us two weeks ago. So congratulations, Mr. and Mrs. Barazani. I see you are a father to eight. You and your wife should get a medal. <laughs> Hope all is well with your family. And so just thank you, right? Thank you, Aretz. And it was a pleasure to hear from you. And stay in touch, please. And the Lord be with you. But I bring this up because what I'm trying to do in Greeley, Colorado, has a corollary wherever you're at. And it is fun to think that what we might do, it might seem very small. It might be the widow's might, so to speak. But if it influences someone else to contribute what they have, what they bring. If you being a father to your children, men, encourages the other dads around you to be fathers to their children, that is a precious thing in God's sight. If you taking care of fatherless children in your community, in your vicinity, influences others to also step up to the plate and look out for those fatherless children, that is a precious thing. That is religion that God finds pure and acceptable. If you keeping yourself unspotted from the world without a word, because it's going to be met with hostility, 
the bandwagon does not take kindly to those who decline the invitation to come along. That is a precious thing. And so I'm going to keep on with the encouragement, very much appreciated from Eretz. I'm going to keep it up, but let's talk about some current events items. First up, Edward Teach at Not The Bee had a piece posted yesterday. Did you know the USDA has partnered with a massive Chinese biotech firm that was blacklisted by the Department of Defense? The Epoch Times tweeted out or X'd out, I guess. I don't know what you call it anymore. If they're changing the branding, thinks Elon Musk, changing the branding. Uh, the Epoch Times solved for X, maybe. That's what it'll be, maybe. Sorry to the folks who don't like algebra. That's what you get. Uh, Republican senators <laughs> are probing the USDA over its partnership with Chinese biotech firm BGI, a genomics giant, which has been blacklisted by the Department of Defense and the Commerce Department, warning that the collaboration would give China a competitive edge. As Edward Teach continues, the Chinese genomics giant, which has been blacklisted by both the Defense and Commerce Departments, has been working with the USDA, which is the U.S. Department of Agriculture, since as early as 2018 on the Earth Biogenome Project, which aims to sequence the genomes of over 1.5 million species over a 10-year span to catalog the Earth's biodiversity. Now, here's the question. How does a Washington-level bureau even begin working with a company that has been blacklisted by the Department of Defense? Who allows that? Who greenlit it? As the senators note, the entire undertaking is a, quote, massive effort to sequence all of life, end quote. It's a sensitive topic. It has profound security implications in a wide variety of areas. The Department of Defense, for one, blacklisted the company because of its support for the, quote, modernization goals of the People's Liberation Army, end quote. Kansas Senator Roger Marshall correctly pointed out that the Chinese Communist Party, quote, views biology as a domain of warfare, end quote. As such, the U.S. government must take extreme caution to prevent sponsoring research that gives any sensitive materials and intellectual property to the Chinese Communist Party, end quote. Well, it's a little late. The cat's out of the bag. Five years has passed, and I'm sure they've gotten plenty. But why might this be perhaps possibly a concern for you and I? Why would this be our business? Why should you pay any attention whatsoever? Well, hypothetically, you might check out some works of science fiction, for instance. And yes, they are fictional works. That's why we call them science fiction. But very often, sci-fi is a way of sandboxing. It's a way of testing out certain ideas in a hypothetical way. And that really is a lot of science when done right. Anyways, you're going to posit something that you think there might be a relationship between, and then you work through the ramifications in their particulars. And so consider the works of Michael Crichton, for instance. What are the potential effects of the People's Liberation Army, the CCP's military, having the inside track on the genome sequencing for one and a half million creatures, species? on earth. Now, what are the potential ramifications? Are there military applications? Are there possibly biological weapons that could be generated? And oh, by the way, 
did we not learn any lessons from the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the whole COVID business? Did we, did, did we not did did we not uh, learn our lesson? Maybe not. Uh, probably not. Apparently not. If animals and plants can be sequenced and then perhaps possibly mutated, or if they can be infected with something in certain regions, and then they become carriers, and then that is the equivalent of, let's say, for instance, in the book of Judges, which we will get to very soon as we continue reading through the Bible, starting in the Old Testament, a chapter at a time, a chapter or so per episode. When we get to the story of Samson, we have this judge capturing foxes, tying their tails together, and then lighting them on fire so that they spread fire throughout the standing grain of the Philistines. And that may have an equivalent if the CCP, if the People's Liberation Army, finds something that they can make certain animal species that are common to an enemy country susceptible to, if they can attack an enemy by attacking the wildlife or using the wildlife as a conduit, and here we should have in view birds and mammals and fish and insects, pretty much all of the creatures, right? All of the animals, all of the creatures. If those animals, those creatures can become conduits for attacking us, spreading diseases to us, or else tainting our food supply, or else damaging our environment, well, I would say that becomes very quickly a cause for great concern. You know, if we're thinking in conventional terms about what Cold War 2.0, which we're, according to many experts, and I would agree, already in with China, if we're already in Cold War 2.0, we should not suppose that Cold War 2.0 looks like the first Cold War, where it is a standoff with nuclear weapons. And the Soviets and the US build up and up and up their influence in countries around the world or overthrowing the governments of countries around the world or building up their stockpiles of nuclear weapons and then threatening one another back and forth with those nuclear weapons. Cold War 2.0 is going to have a lot more of this kind of cloak and dagger, this kind of thrust and parry and dodge. And this is going to be what it is, right? This is, it's going to be very small weapons more often than it is very big weapons. It's going to be the kinds of weapons that it's impossible for you to defend against. You know, that was one of the things that brought the first Cold War to an end and led to the collapse of the Soviet Union was not just how expensive is it to build and maintain all of these nuclear weapons and could the Soviet Union keep up with that, but also once we started developing defense systems, and Ronald Reagan, by the way, was mocked endlessly by the Democrats for proposing this or for sponsoring, endorsing it, arguing for it. But once we started to build up weapons that could neutralize the weapons of our enemies or systems that could neutralize the attack capability of our enemies, 
Well, then we started to get them on the ropes. Then we started to win really, really, truly. And it changed the whole dynamic globally that the Soviet Union collapsed. They couldn't maintain it. Their economy was not stout and strong enough to be able to do what they needed to do. And oh, by the way, they oppressed their people and demotivated them through communism, disincentivized hard work or critical thinking or speaking honestly. They incentivized and rewarded bad behavior, criminality, oppression, faithlessness, betrayal, invasions of privacy, slander. In Cold War 2.0, if we are cooperating with the CCP on any project like this, we have to understand that they're not dumb, right? They're not stupid over there in China. Communism is stupid. It's a very bad idea, but they're not stupid when it comes to their tactics. They're very shrewd. They're very clever. And they also don't have any fear of God. Communism is inherently atheistic and anti-theistic. They have no fear of God. They will do whatever they think they can and think they need to in order to win. And so it's good that Republicans here in the U.S. are looking into this and they're saying, that's dangerous. No, stop it, USDA. But again, again, we have to know, we have to recognize that a lot of people who get their news from the corporate news media, who get their news, they get their information from an echo chamber, any echo chamber will do that the left has set up online or IRL, they will find a way to turn this into some additional reason why the Republicans are awful, why conservative Americans are awful, and why you should just give them more wealth and more power. They will find a way to turn this into actually Republicans being the bad guys. Make no mistake. Switching gears, Frank Camp over at the Daily Wire published a piece on the 26th, so earlier this week, the 10 most incredible exchanges from the House UAP hearing Now, before we read any of these highlights, a quick word about having changed the acronym that is being used in news reporting. Instead of calling them UFOs, because that acronym has been marginalized and dismissed as kooky, conspiracy theory, crazy, deranged, weird, nonsensical, For decades in the mainstream, it's been portrayed as not at all credible. Because UFO is not a term that we put any stock in, even though it's literally the exact same thing as a UAP. A UAP is a UFO. A UFO is a UAP. An unidentified flying object could be anything that's in the air that you don't know what it is. That's all a UFO is. And that's Very much what a UAP is as well, unidentified aerial phenomena. They're playing games with language. It's newspeak, right? It's newspeak, and you're supposed to have something like a reset cognitively so that you shed all of your biases, all of your prejudices, all of your preconceived notions. That's why they keep using this word or this acronym, rather, UAP. But I digress but not really. Skipping on down, I'm going to play for you cut two here. And this is interesting stuff. This is Representative Tim Burchett, Republican from Tennessee, asking 
whistleblower David Grush, who, according to the reporting by Frank Camp, was the National Reconnaissance Office's NRO's representative to the UAP task force beginning in 2019, which is to say that there is such a thing as a UAP task force in our government. Here is Tim Burchett, Republican from Tennessee, asking David Grush if individuals have been harmed, injured, or murdered in efforts to cover up or conceal UAP tech. Here it is. Cut to. Take a listen. Do you have any personal knowledge of people who have been harmed or injured in efforts to cover up or conceal these extraterrestrial technology? Yes. Personally. Have you heard, have anyone been murdered that you would think, that you know of or have heard of, I guess? I have to be careful asking that question. I directed people with that knowledge to the appropriate authorities. Maybe in a, um, if we could get it, get in a um, confidential area skiff, we could talk about that. But unfortunately, um, we were denied access to the skiff. And that's very unfortunate in this, in this scenario. Okay. So did you catch that? Right? Did you catch that? Yes, people have been harmed and injured. And on the question of murder, I have to be careful how I answer that publicly. That's the answer that's given. Very, very interesting. That is terribly interesting. Whatever you think is going on with UFOs, UAPs, whether you put any stock whatsoever in the potential that it's non-human life, not from here, the idea that something we can't identify, we don't identify, some special project maybe, some special research initiative is producing these craft and the folks who have seen up close or have evidence or have testimony about these things have been harmed, injured, or murdered to cover it up. That potentiality, that possibility being talked about in Congress, publicly, being taken seriously, it would seem, that is very, very interesting. And oh, by the way, in case it's not obvious, if the truth is not supposed to be public knowledge, it's not even perhaps possibly going to be disclosed to members of Congress or what have you, well then, I'm sorry, what standing do these bureaucracies, what standing do these government agencies have when we don't vote for them, right? They're appointed, they're appointees. Why are we not privy to that? Why are our elected representatives in Congress possibly not even privy to that? Isn't that weird? Doesn't that maybe speak to what people talk about when they say that there is a bureaucratic state, there is a deep state? It seems to me, yes. Something like the Chaldeans actually is the power behind the scenes. Uh, Here's cut three, Representative Robert Garcia, Democrat from California, also questioning David Grush. Cut three, here it is. Take a listen. Mr. Grush, finally, do you believe that our government is in possession of UAPs? Uh, Absolutely, based on interviewing uh, over 40 witnesses over four years. And and, and where? I know the exact locations, and, and those locations were provided to the Inspector General and some of which to the intelligence committees. I actually had the people with the firsthand knowledge um, provide a protected disclosure to the inspector general. Thank you. Okay, so this is very interesting. Anytime Democrats and Republicans agree on anything, it's worth tuning in. It really is. This is very interesting because that's a Democrat asking the question, and he seems, again, seems to be taking this very seriously. He seems to be very interested. 
He's not coming in, blowing it off. He's asking questions that either he already knows the answers to, but he wants us to know the answers to, or he honestly doesn't know the answer to these questions, which again, as per my comment before I played cut three for you, is a very curious thing. So let me go off on a rabbit trail here for a moment, and we'll circle back if you're not. There are basically two responses that I'm seeing to this whole UAP, UFO hearings, investigation, reporting business here lately. There are two kinds of responses. One response is to say, I knew it. I knew that there were aliens. I knew that there were aliens, right? That's one. That's one response. I want to believe. That's one response, one kind of response anyways. And you can tell who those people are. It's typically the folks who've been reading sci-fi for years. They've been watching epic science fiction where there are aliens. And this is truth potentially possibly being stranger than fiction if it turns out there was more to some of those stories than we at first thought. We thought they were just totally made up, but maybe there's something there. There's there there. So that's one kind of response to all this. And in that response, a necessary presupposition is that our government, insofar as it has known and not told us, has been keeping the truth from us and in many cases lying to us and potentially possibly even harming, injuring, threatening, even murdering people who would have come forward and made these things public knowledge. All that is to say, the people who believe that the government has known and has been keeping it secret, they believe, they presuppose, they start with the assumption that our government can lie to us or at minimum keep very important, very consequential secrets from us, whether or not it would be good for us to know the truth as we see it. If they don't think it would be good for national security or their business, financial interests, personal interests, if they don't think it would be good, then they keep those secrets. Okay. So that's one kind of response to all this business. And I actually haven't heard a lot of people who are in that camp, but I know that there are plenty of people. Matt Walsh is one who I think, funny enough, commented on something Ben Shapiro had posted to Facebook that I saw yesterday. He said that the hearings were basically like the Super Bowl for him, right? This is, (laughs) he's just glued to the screen, hanging on every word. This is the Super Bowl to him, but he was replying, Matt Walsh was, to something Ben Shapiro had posted about how there is no such thing, right? There, there is no such thing as aliens. There are no aliens, not on Earth, not anywhere else. There are no aliens. No, no, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. And I think those two are pretty much, even on the conservative side of things, summing up the two kinds of responses. And that is to say the second kind of response is the people who are saying, wait a second, why this sudden interest in UAPs? What's up with that? What are you trying to distract us from? Ah, not so fast. Nah, 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 Now, let's go back to how the economy is doing. You're just trying to distract from how bad the economy is doing. You're just trying to distract from what you're doing to push for a Green New Deal and global socialism. 
you're just trying to hide the scandals of the Biden family. You're just trying to hide the business about Donald Trump and January 6th. And you're just trying to vent and purge the contaminants out of this tank before you get to work welding on it. But you know what the people in that second category are presupposing? They're presupposing that their government can conspire against the general public to mislead, to distract, to deceive, to manipulate, to lie to the general public, whether because they think this advances national security interests or their financial interests or their personal interests. And so what's the common denominator? What's the lowest common denominator you can get out of the two kinds of responses to these hearings on UAPs and all the reporting on UAPs? The lowest common denominator is none of us trust that our government is going to tell us the truth consistently. All of us believe either in the past or in the present and therefore also potentially in the future, our government can lie to us, can deceive us, can mislead us, can manipulate us, can take advantage of us after a fashion. And that's interesting. That is very interesting to me. One more clip, one more clip. This one, a question from Representative Anna Paulina Luna from Florida, Republican from Florida, asking David Grush about his own personal safety. Is he concerned? Here it is. Cut four. Take a listen. In the last couple of years, have you had incidences that have caused you to be in fear for your life for addressing these issues? Yes, personally. I just want everyone to note that he's coming forward in fear of his life to put in perspective if they were really not scared about this information coming out, why would someone be intimidated like that? Okay. So again, one more thought on this. The earlier question in the earlier clip that I played for you, having to do with people being harmed, injured, threatened, or else even murdered, when it came to the question of murder, there was a, you know, I have to be careful how I answer certain of these questions. Basically, I'm not at liberty to say. And then we come to this, and his answer is very simple, short, to the point, yes. Have you been in fear of your life? Have you been concerned about your own personal safety? Yes. Now, that doesn't prove, by the way, that does not prove that Grush has been threatened by anybody or that there is anybody who would harm him or kill him for coming forward to try and prevent him from doing so, to silence him. It doesn't prove it. But again, go back to the two categories of people. Some people are saying, We think the government has been lying to us for decades and they've known that this was a thing and they kept it secret for whatever reasons, probably lots of reasons, probably all the above reasons. There are others who are saying, no, the government is lying to us right now. And any way you slice it, Republicans and Democrats seem to be taking this seriously. And so if our government is lying to us now and just trying to distract us from what they're doing over there or over here or in that other place, again... It's concerning that we don't trust that we're going to be told the truth by our own government. It's encouraging that people would say, our government should tell us the truth. That's not too much to ask. Now, if there are people who are being injured, threatened, 
they fear for their lives, or this can't be disclosed. Why would that be, right? Is that pretending that there's something super secret just to distract? I'll let you decide what you think it is. But me personally, I have zero, zero trouble entertaining the idea that there are non-human actors in the universe that does not conflict with my Christianity, that does not conflict with my reading of the Bible. In fact, it fits very, very neatly into saying, oh, what are these angels and demons all about? Are they human? No. Can they present as human? Yes. You know, it's just like the difference between UFO and UAP. You can change the terminology. That doesn't change what we're talking about. We all know what we're talking about here. If in our Bibles and in a more traditional historical understanding of the cosmos, Christians, Jews, Muslims believe that there are angels and demons. And then someone starts talking all about actual sightings of strange flying objects, the potential that certain things have been recovered, certain technology has been recovered, biologicals have been recovered. Well, let's just reserve judgment. Let's just be willing to find out that these two separate, distinct categories we had in our minds for understanding what the Bible is talking about and understanding what these people who claim to have seen things are talking about, these two categories might be overlapping categories. It's a possibility, but we'll see. Going back to not to be though, Joel Abbott, one of my favorites, posted up just two days ago. This former federal prosecutor has a great theory on what happened with Hunter Biden in court this week. Joel Abbott writes, nobody messes with a Biden except when they do. If you missed it, Hunter's sweetheart plea deal fell completely through the floor yesterday into some subterranean dwelling of the swamp lizard people. He's joking, by the way. A development that shocked the talking heads across the media landscape. Will Scharf, a former federal prosecutor who is running for Missouri Attorney General, offered what I think is the most robust theory on what happened in the courthouse that caused the Biden DOJ's deal to fall apart for the darling White House prince. This is long and in-depth, but it's racked up millions of views in the last day. Check it out, and I will read it in, in its entirety. And I quote from Will Scharf. Typically, if the government is offering to a defendant that it will either drop charges or decline to bring new charges in return for the defendant's guilty plea, the plea is structured under Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 11C1A. An agreement not to prosecute Hunter for FARA violations or other crimes in return for his pleading guilty to the tax misdemeanors, for example, would usually be a C1A plea. This is open, transparent, subject to judicial approval, etc. In Hunter's case, according to what folks in the courtroom have told me, Hunter's plea was structured under the Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 11C1B, which is usually just a plea in return for a joint sentencing recommendation only and contained no information on its face about other potential charges and contained no clear agreement by DOJ to forego prosecution of other charges. Instead, DOJ and Hunter's lawyers effectively hid that part of the agreement in what was publicly described as a pretrial diversion agreement relating to a subsection 922G3 gun charge against Hunter for being a drug user in possession of a firearm. 
that pretrial diversion agreement as written was actually much broader than just the gun charge. If Hunter were to complete probation, the pretrial diversion agreement prevented DOJ from ever bringing charges against Hunter for any crimes relating to the offense conduct discussed in the plea agreement, which was purposely written to include his foreign influence peddling operations in China and elsewhere. So they put the facts in the plea agreement, but put their non-prosecution agreement in the pretrial diversion agreement, effectively hiding the full scope of what DOJ was offering and Hunter was obtaining through these proceedings. Hunter's upside from this deal was vast immunity from further prosecution if he finished a couple of years of probation and the public wouldn't be any the wiser because none of this was clearly stated on the face of the plea agreement as would normally be the case. Judge Norieka smelled a rat. She understood that the lawyers were trying to paint her into a corner and hide the ball. Instead, she backed DOJ and Hunter's lawyers into a corner by pulling all the details out into the open and then indicating she was not going to approve a deal as broad as what she had discovered. DOJ attempting to save face and save its case, then stated on the record that the investigation into Hunter was ongoing and that Hunter remained susceptible to prosecution under FARA. Hunter's lawyers exploded. They clearly believed that FARA was covered under the deal because, as written, the pretrial diversion agreement language was broad enough to cover it. They blew up the deal. Hunter pled not guilty, and that's the current state of play. And so here we are. Hunter's lawyers and DOJ are going to go off and try to pull together a new set of agreements, likely narrower, to satisfy Judge Noriyika. Fortunately, I doubt if FARA or any charges related to Hunter's foreign influence peddling will be included, which leaves open the possibility of further investigations leading to further prosecutions. The TLDR version is that Judge Noriyika was concerned about the DOJ colluding to shield the sun. And here is Joel Abbott, by the way. Back to Joel Abbott out of the commentary from Will Scharf. Judge Noriyika was concerned about the DOJ colluding to shield the son of the current president from future prosecution and called them out on it. The DOJ, trying to pretend that it is as pure as the driven snow, threw Hunter under the bus at the last moment to keep the scent of scandal off them. This angered Hunter and his team, so they decided to say, skip it and go to court. Now, why, why is this important? Why do I bring this up? Well, for one thing, because Hunter Biden is getting partiality, and that is not good. That is not okay. That is not right. That's immoral. It's ungodly. And it is a thing that we should be very concerned about. Because if Hunter is getting partiality, how many others are getting partiality as well because of who their fathers are? You know, there's a distinction here that I want to emphasize. On the one hand, it's good for a father to be there for his son, to provide for his son, to protect his son. And so you might fall victim to the manipulative tactics of the mainstream media, the corporate news media, the Democratic spokespeople, you may fall victim as they play up this just being a father who wants to stand by his son. I want to give you a different way of looking at it, especially with the shenanigans here involving the DOJ. Why would the DOJ be running interference for Hunter Biden? Because he's not the only one. Because so many others are implicated, and if the precedent is set with Hunter Biden, then there are a lot of other very wealthy, powerful, influential politicians and 
corporate bosses, and wealthy financiers, there are a lot of other wealthy and powerful Americans in particular whose children would then be liable to similar treatment. And insofar as a lot of the children of these corrupt politicians and wealthy persons and influential people in the economy, insofar as those children have been misbehaving, if they've been misbehaving abroad and selling American secrets, American technology, American influence, American power, the American people, more to the point, out, and that's how their parents have been propped up, have gotten so wealthy, have maintained so much power in part. What happens with Hunter Biden is hugely important. It's hugely important to unscrupulous people who have been taking bribes for years. It's hugely important to foreign entities who have been buying access to American power and influence. It's very important to the corporate news media that has known about stories like this and run interference for years. It's very important to social media giants that have hushed up, shadow banned, silenced, censored, suppressed, fact-checked stories like this about the children of wealthy and powerful people. Because, oh, by the way, they're not just selling metadata on you and I so that marketing firms and political parties can know how to advertise to us how to engineer our choices. They're also selling access to the censorship machine because this is a consensus factory. If the consensus is, in short order, well and truly broken, if the consensus factory is smashed to pieces, it's going to be a very, very different country. It's going to be a very different world. And so what I would expect coming out of this and why you should know what I would expect coming out of this is either A, this meatball is going to get a lot spicier as the wealthy, powerful people are backed into a corner themselves and then have to fold and then face the consequences of their actions, the corruption, bribery, extortion, racketeering, perhaps even espionage, perhaps even treason. And as they feel pressed, as they feel like they are in a life-or-death, fight-or-flight, now-or-never crisis, they will lash out with even more violence, more venom against any who would hold them to account. And actually, oh, by the way, I think that is exactly what's been happening for the past several years. And I think that that's no small part of why Donald Trump faced as much opposition as he did throughout his administration during his first election campaign, during his re-election campaign, and since leaving office. I think that's exactly what the corporate news media and social media and the establishment of both principal political parties in the U.S. have been about. And that could be in large part if the folks who dismiss the UAP business as a red herring are right, that could be no small part of why there's suddenly this major interest in UAPs. It's bread and circuses. At a certain point, at a certain point, we're going to know the truth about these things that are being reported on. In the meantime, something I want to commit to you is that Biden and these other wealthy, powerful parents 
they're not actually loving their children. They're using their children. Joe Biden, having raised his son to be a drug addict and a fraudster and negligent with regards to children he was fathering, Joe Biden having raised Hunter to be through and through a scoundrel and a reprobate, and then bringing the entirety of the U.S. government to bear as much as he could muster to shield his son from accountability, that is not loving his son. That's not him loving his son. That's his using his son and then his protecting himself because who's implicated if Hunter goes down? Joe is implicated. And you might say, oh, but it's bittersweet and it's tragic in its way, isn't it? You know, it's bittersweet that he loves his son and, you know, no, that's no virtue. That is no virtue. It's actually not his loving his son well. It's not even his loving his son truly. It's his using his son. And this is unfortunately, I think, going to be a major legacy of the baby boomers in general, that they used their children. And if they couldn't find a use for their children, they aborted them because it was all about them in too many cases. Not all, but in too many. It was the baby boomers all about themselves, and they didn't care what they left to future generations. But if they could use the future generations to prolong their own lives, to amuse themselves, they did so. And this is a mess, right? This is a mess, and it should sober us as to how we raise our own children and what we regard as our business in the public square. If you're going to seek the welfare of the city, start by having integrity yourself. Start by being a person who only ever tells the truth. And if you can't say the true thing, then you just don't say anything at all. And at a certain point, people will say, you know, you've been really suspiciously quiet. What are you thinking? And when they ask you that, you have to be careful sometimes not to cast your pearls before swine, not to give the dogs what is holy, not to correct fools who will only hate you for it. But you have to be a person who has earned trust by your good behavior, even if it's not rewarded, even if they do hate you for it because they gave you no choice and you did tell the true thing, or you had to bring accountability, you had to report on this, you had to make people up the chain know that something very unethical, very immoral, and yes, illegal was being done and you were being asked to sign off on it or look the other way, you may not be thanked by men. But that's why it's important, it's critically important to work as unto the Lord. That's why it's critically important that your goal be to hear well done, good and faithful servant from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If your motivation is to be thanked, applauded, approved of, rewarded by men, you may find very often what you get instead is a shrug. You may find very often what you get instead is resentment, ostracization, maligning, slander, that the whole assembly picks up stones to stone you, even though you gave a good report and you did the right thing and you said what you were supposed to say. But you know what? If God rewards you like you rewarded Joshua and Caleb, allowing them to come into the promised land, when the whole rest of their generation, the rest of their generation, all those other men had died in the desert, well then, well then, that's better, isn't it? And that's a picture of eternity. On the day of judgment, when you give an account, if you're in Christ, well then, 
your sins are not counted against you, and that's glorious. But your good deeds, your good deeds that God prepared for you to walk in from before the foundations of the world, those do count in your favor. Anyone who relaxes even the least of the commandments will be considered least in the kingdom, Jesus says. Those who keep the commandments and teach others to do likewise will be considered greatest, and they will incur the resentment, the envy, the hatred of many around them, as they do. But then there's a blessing, and that's what the Beatitudes get into. Blessed are you when men hate you and speak all manner of evil against you for my name's sake. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers with who? With those who have sinned against each other, humanly speaking, with those who have sinned against God and their maker. But you don't do that if you affirm the sin. You don't do that if you just figure out who's got the biggest stick to whack you with and you go along with them and you are partial towards them. That's not making peace. That's a form of peace, peace, but there is no peace. So in closing, I want you to consider going back to Deuteronomy 26. God wants our first fruits. He wants us to give cheerfully our first fruits. And when we give our first fruits, we're not giving them in bribes to the powerful. When we give our first fruits, who are we taking care of? We're taking care of the priests of our God. We're taking care of the sojourner, the one who is not from around here. We're taking care of the fatherless. We're taking care of the widows to make sure that they eat and get their fill, to make sure that they're looked after. When we give our first fruits, we're giving our best, not the leftovers. We're giving our best. And we need, when we give our best, for it to be with all our heart, with all our soul, joyfully, as unto the Lord, without partiality. And whatever happens politically, whatever is going on in Washington, whatever's going on in your state capital, whatever's going on in your city, if you will do that, you are actually seeking the welfare of the city and you will get a reputation that is honorable and it's okay for you to get a reputation that's honorable, but you shouldn't try and protect your reputation by just refusing to do anything that people might disapprove of, particularly if God has commanded you to, but you have to maintain a tension there. And if you will maintain that tension, you will find, and you shouldn't shy away from this, you shouldn't pull back, you shouldn't be afraid, you will find that you exert an influence by your righteousness. Your righteousness will help to exalt the nation. And remember, sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. If we do love our country, we want righteousness to exalt it. We want there to be a characteristic of honor and integrity, decency, fairness, impartiality, equal protection of the laws, and yes, when there's a violation of the laws, equal application of the laws, not passes given. It's not mercy when a pass is given to the corrupt son of a corrupt leader of the people. We need people who hate bribes. That means we have to be people who hate bribes. But if we will do that, that's not weary, joyless rulemaking. If we understand that there's great benefit, there is a great benefit to be had in that. And that the cost, whatever the cost is, pales in comparison. Then we will do it happily. And we should.
and we should. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I gotta run. I actually am going to load up some firearms and go sell them because that's the economy right now. It pains me to do so, but what was I just saying about costs and benefits? The benefit outweighs the cost, so I will. I'm not selling all of them. Any of you people with bad motives out there, not so fast. Not so fast. I'm not selling all of them. <laughs> but I got to run and do that. Maybe I'll play some more board games with my sons today. I hope so. Speaking of rules, board games have rules. That's probably what makes them fun. But again, as I said, I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.